0: Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris and I'm Jake, and happy Friday, everybody. We've got a finally. One- <laughs> That's funny. You, you're The nine to fivers are like, yes, it's Friday. I'm like, is it Friday? <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> but I'm working tomorrow and Sunday on things of my own. So the weekends don't really exist. Is that for me. work though? Is my job? Is what I do work? Oh, I thought you meant like you're working on your car. Well, I'll be doing that as well, but okay. I have some things I need to write, some yeah, articles I need to that. work on. That counts. Yes, yes, sitting in my gloomy basement if, writing if it, stuff.
1: If it pays money, then that
0: counts. Okay, that's true. My <laughs> work in my car does not pay money. No, actually, that no, costs it, a it, lot of money. It is hemorrhaging it money. We'll do a we'll do a project update on Monday. We don't have time for it today because no. Jake has a killer. History episode for us today. And That's it's been a lot right. of fun. We came in yesterday and we did a couple of interviews that were one led to another. It was really great. Got to talk to some old timers about about some stuff. I don't know how much I'm supposed to reveal, so I'm going to kind of just be quiet about it and let yeah. you take well, the reins. We will
1: get into it shortly. Before we do, though, let's talk about Petrol Box. Petrol Box is, of course, a monthly subscription service specifically made for the car guy, the automotive enthusiast in your life, or perhaps yourself because guess what these make great gifts each month they carefully select items including tools detailing supplies apparel t-shirts hats garage gear stickers books you name it and they send it right there to your doorstep every single month is a surprise what you're getting there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from the PetrolBox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month at 1995, while the PetrolBox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. What's even more cool is every single month, these guys select one lucky subscriber to get a free set of Rotiform wheels. So be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OverCrest at checkout to get six bucks off your first month's order.
0: All right, what are we what are we look- so, so here's here's the thing. Okay, so we do on Mondays we do a lot of news, right? We know what's what's coming, it's the current events and stuff like that. But one thing that's that I think, right. but I, one thing I think is really important is knowing where we came from and understanding the history of the industry and everything that came before. And that's one of the reasons why I really have focused on Doing historical things, and you focused on you doing. F- his- you focused on them. Well, it was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> After all, I'm just saying. I think it's important. No, it's to- really good that we're doing these. And yeah, I think they're very interesting, and I think they're interesting, and I and I th- hope people learn a lot. And uh, I think this one's going to be great. It will. So, Chris, the earliest
1: 20th century was a wild time. Technology was advancing so rapidly that it seemed no idea
0: was too crazy for engineers to dream up. So, to, in 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 terms of historical technological advancements, there's been two, right? We had the Industrial Revolution. Yep. And then we have now, right. which is like the internet and computers and everything like that. Otherwise, nothing else in human history has been anything well, like other than maybe the some Roman stuff yeah, back in the day. Listen but, to these two examples.
1: We had started to see the first automobiles right at the turn of the century, 1900. Then, only eight years later, in 1908, the Model T was released and became commonplace during its
0: 19-year production run. Yeah, early 20th century. Is That's unbelie- amazing. Unbelievable.
1: And just before that, the Wright brothers had accomplished the first powered manned flight in 1903. Only 11 years later saw the first commercial flight.
0: Okay, Think, think about w- that. Think about this. Okay, so we've been, it's the year 2020, okay? So we have 2,000 years ago, Christ was apparently born, and then another however many That's beasts. That's not
1: disputed. That's not an apparently.
0: Okay, so he was apparently born around 2,000 right. years ago, okay? And then prior to that, 500 years, 750 years, however long it was when humans existed, up until 120 years ago, you were walking or riding a horse. Right. For thousands of <laughs> years, you had to have nice shoes made by a cobbler guy I know. Would make And in the last 120 years, all of a sudden, we've got, like you said, we've got cars, planes. Um, I just saw a video on on Instagram of the guy from MythBusters yeah. being pulled in a rickshaw by a robot. That's hilarious and seems very inefficient. <laughs> it, it, was, it was two completely different things. I'm just saying, just to, just on your point. It's It's, amazing what's happened in the last 120 years. It's been crazy. So
1: when you think about that rate of technological advancement, it shouldn't come as any surprise to hear about the things young engineers were dreaming up in the 1930s. With traditional internal combustion engines having been around for over 30 years, they must have seemed old hat at that point, right? Which is why Chrysler started investing in research, designing, and building a functional gas turbine engine. (laughs) <laughs> why not why not the research was mainly academic before the u.s entered world war ii however once chrysler got back to producing cars after the war effort that explosion of innovation and invention that came during the war effort chrysler began experimenting and testing turbine engines in 1954 now george
0: hubner was an executive Can we define turbine engine can we can you define that for me quick so we know exactly what it is yeah, we're talking so, uh, about Yeah
1: so a turbine engine is simple intake air is compressed and preheated then burned in an open chamber out of which the rapidly expanding gases are directed onto two turbine
0: wheels So are are all turbine engines turboprop engines are they tur- No not a, I mean turboprop obviously has a prop right. but I'm talking about a turbo turbine engine so there's so there are I think two different ways you can think about that so
1: basically you have in any turbine engine you have a shaft connecting the compressor
0: yep. with the turbine so okay. what am i seeing when i look at a jet engine and i see that those fans that, are that. is
1: the outer compressor wheel okay. Okay. so think about it this way that is basically compressing incoming air then it gets mixed with fuel then it explodes and that explosion drives the turbine. Now that turbine is what the compressor shaft is connected to.
0: Right. So it's this cycle, basically. However, after that, so that's your. So are we are we compressing this air into a combustion chamber? Is there some yeah, sort of? It's it's all linear though. Okay. So
1: yes, but it's all linear. Okay. However, have you seen the backyard guys where they like make little like turbine engines out of turbochargers? No. That has a separate combustion chamber. Okay. We can
0: make one of those later. That sounds great. And then we'll blow up. (laughs) I can think of a lot of ways to blow
1: ourselves up. So there are actually two turbine wheels in a turbine. You have your primary turbine wheel that just drives that compressor fan. Then you have the secondary and that's basically connected to whatever you're driving that's where your power output comes from okay so think of it this way you have basically this jet engine that's blowing at a fan and that fan is what actually is driving your output okay so george hubner was an executive engineer for chrysler corporation and his group of research engineers were convinced that this engine was a viable product now the benefits of turbine engines were actually numerous you have reduced maintenance Longer engine life expectancy, large development potential. This is brand new after all. And overall parts reduction of approximately 80%. How much so less does this there, weigh? You basically than a, have 60 parts in a turbine
0: compared to over 300 for a regular combustion Think engine. of an iron block 318 Chrysler motor. Right. I mean, that weighs 600 pounds between yes. the block and the iron heads and they everything else. much lighter. This is significantly more. Yeah. Uh, the other
1: thing is tune-ups were completely eliminated nothing like needs what ignites to, the fuel there is actually a spark plug okay so there's just a but spark- however it once it starts it's just fully
0: it just keeps going right so it's, it's constantly yeah. burning yeah it's like an electrode that just all the time
1: no that's only when it starts because oh. otherwise you always have a flame front okay yeah you know what i mean yep uh, low temperature starting so turn difficulties. It off, I'm sorry,
0: just to turn it off, you just cut the fuel. Just then. cut fuel. That's yep. all you gotta do. Yep.
1: So low temperature starting difficulties were eliminated, and there's no warm-up needed. So when it's 11 below, as it is right now in Minneapolis, you won't have an issue starting this thing. Yeah. Because it's just basically turning on an explosion. <laughs> <laughs> there's no coolant required, which is interesting. It's basically self-cooling especially well, they're cool yeah basically and interior heat is available instantly as you would imagine <laughs> because it's a turbine yes uh engine operating what without it, what,
0: vibration how do, you, how do you get heat into the car with that is there just some like heat exchanger it's stuff? got to be a heat exchanger yeah. yeah with the exhaust uh there's no vibration
1: at all because everything's so perfectly balanced because it's spinning at such high rpm what kind of rpms vibrate. are we talking about It ran up to 50,000 RPM, these things. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, so it's moving. Uh, And most importantly, a wide range of fuels would actually be able to be employed as replacement for petroleum. You could use kerosene if you wanted to. exactly. So the engineers at Chrysler were off. The first successful test of a gas turbine engine in a car took place in 1954 at Chrysler's testing grounds. The engine was dubbed the CR-1. Then, in 1956, the first successful cross-country trip using a turbine engine car took place. Further engineering work resulted in the second-generation turbine, dubbed the CR-2, which makes sense. Did that stand for anything, CR? I'm sure it did. Chrysler rocketry one <laughs> that's not true at all. not true as i've said before these uh, these podcasts they're mainly for uh, entertainment value not precise. yeah don't write
0: your uh, your thesis based, yeah, based on, on that. That. don't use this as a source for your thesis <laughs> paper on rocket engines
1: regardless in 1961 a third generation engine which is the cr2a was installed in a 1962 dodge dart which I had a 1970 Dodge Dart. I love the Dodge Dart. I do too. This was successfully driven from New York City to Los Angeles through snowstorms, rain, and heavy winds. The fourth generation engine was then put into use in 1963. The fourth generation engine ran at up to (laughs) 44,500 revolutions per minute and could operate using diesel fuel, unleaded gasoline, kerosene, JP 4 jet fuel and vegetable oil. The engine could run on virtually anything with combustible properties. In fact, Chrysler claimed the turbine could gulp everything from peanut oil to Chanel number five. The president of Mexico tested this theory by running one of the first cars successfully, mind you on
0: tequila. Wow. That must work great in Mexico. (laughs) Just don't forget the lions, Chris. Mm, Yeah. I don't know about that. Uh,
1: even more impressive was the fact that no air fuel adjustments were required to switch from one fuel type to another. It basically just
0: self-regulates. The only evidence... Just so does it self-regulate by the RPM? It'll just... Because it's...
1: No, it just... It, it, the limiting factor is fuel, whereas in a combustion engine, a normal one, the limiting factor is generally the air you can pump in and then right. just mix the fuel. So basically, it just burns all of whatever it is it can. At any
0: given time. efficiency is the only thing that's really going to change. Here. Exactly. Uh, the only evidence of which
1: fuel you were burning was the odor of the exhaust, which have you ever smelt one of those diesel guys that run off of like fryer oil? Yeah. The car smells like French fries the whole time.
0: Yep. There's many, many Volkswagens and Mercedes that have been ruined by guys doing this. <laughs> so what they do is they drive over to McDonald's. They pick up the fryer oil. Yes. They tie they tie knots in the bottom of their jeans. Okay, and then they take the fryer oil and they pour it into the leg of their jeans and strain it through there, and then they have these jugs in the back of their car, and it's like, I,
1: (laughs) so many cars. I would much rather run off tequila than that. More expensive. Probably. Definitely. <laughs> Probably. Uh, as mentioned before, one of the benefits of a turbine engine is its inherent simplicity. The turbine spins on simple sleeve bearings for vibration-free running. So what do you mean by
0: sleeve bearing? What's a sleeve bearing? Sleeve bearing is basically a bushing. Okay, so it's, is it got an oil that goes in between the yes. two? Is it basically a rod basically bearing type thing?
1: no oil consumption from what I read. It's really interesting how efficient this design is. So we're just is. talking about like a rod crankshaft style bearing. That's my not understanding. Not like a roller bearing. Or That's anything my like that. understanding. Okay. Yes. Uh, because no combustion contaminants ever entered the engine oil, oil changes are never required. That sounds awesome. I know. The engine generated 130 brake horsepower and an instant 425 pound-feet of torque at stall speed. That'll put diesels to shame. Yeah, it would. The power turbine is connected without a torque converter... Through a gear reduction unit to a basically stock torque flight automatic transmission. Twin rotating recuperators transfer exhaust heat into the inlet air, greatly improving fuel economy. So these are basically heat exchangers that heat up the intake air by using the exhaust heat. Sure. It also cools the exhaust heat immensely so that it doesn't melt anything around it yeah not good yeah uh varying stator blades prevent excessive top end speeds and provide engine braking on diesel which i thought was interesting you can actually engine brake with a turbine engine my question is
0: is what kind of throttle response are we getting here so throttle that's gotta, lag That's got to be the problem. Yeah. Throttle
1: lag and exhaust gas temperatures at idle plagued the first and second generation of the engine, but Chrysler was able to remedy or at least mitigate these to some degree with the later models. So there's still some lag, but they said by the fourth and later generations you basically couldn't you couldn't feel it. Right. Acceleration was excellent provided the turbine was spun up by applying power prior to releasing the brake. So you basically had to launch this thing at every stoplight. That sounds sounds (laughs) awesome. That's my kind of vehicle. The turbine car also featured a fully stainless steel exhaust system that exits of which were flat in cross section. This was intended to spread out the exhaust gases thinly and thus cool them further after those recuperators in order to allow the vehicle to stand in traffic without, you know, melting
0: the car behind you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Could you imagine some old lady like trying to cross the right behind you with her, with her little pool and the thing comes out like black when it was white on the other side? <laughs> a
1: single reverse flow canister featuring a more or less standard spark plug for ignition was employed. So, Chris, now that we know about this engine in detail, let me tell you about
0: the car. All right. The I see, I see, thing is, is, my my mind goes instantly to what kind of performance or, can we talk about here? Right. You know, we can get 130 horsepower, whatever you said, and then 400 foot pounds of torque. And I'm like, okay. Well, what if we put another injector in there and just force twice as much fuel and run a hundred thousand RPMs instead of fifty thousand RPMs? Just like what's possible? Or I'm we go- sure a lot with further development. Yeah. However, that didn't happen. That yeah. We'll see.
1: So the 1963 Chrysler turbine looked as futuristic as the engine that drove it. The turbine car was designed in the Chrysler Studios under the direction of. Elwood Engel, who had worked for the Ford Motor Company before moving
0: to Chrysler. And this so, thing looks like an airplane.
1: At, and so In the rear, in yes. the rear,
0: it looks like it could it be does. something that should fly. So here's fly. what's
1: interesting. This Elwood Engel, who worked at Ford, he actually designed the Ford Thunderbird. And so this car resembles it, it in does. a lot of ways and is occasionally
0: called the Engelbird. So if you look at the front of this car, the headlights look like the front of a some of the first jet airplanes that existed with the yes! intakes being on the front. Exactly. And then you have the rear, and it looks like a swept wing from some of the early, early planes that were out there. And then, of course, you have the two... Um, I guess that must be the exhaust. Cynthia. No, those are reverse lights. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get
1: to that. Okay. But what's interesting, all this coachwork was actually completed by the Italian f- design firm Ghia for Carmen Ghia fame. And many well. other things. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, the bodies were assembled, painted, trimmed, you, and upholstered in Italy before being Carmen? shipped to Chrysler's Greenfield facility in Detroit. No, this is Ghia. Okay. Yeah. So everything was done in Italy by Gia and then shipped to the facility in Detroit for final assembly. While working Do we know with, why? Why were they doing everything there? What's, I don't know. I don't know. That out. But listen to this. So while working with an illustrious and famed coach builder like Gia, it, it sounds great. One of the engineers in the project, however, had this to say, quote, Ghia covered a lot of sins with lead. The cars came out much heavier than planned. They were about 4,000 pounds with all the lead work offsetting the turbine car's aluminum hood and deck lid. That sounds very Italian. (laughs) Uh, You know, we drank a lot of wine and we got the Ripley panel. Let's just put some lead on it.
0: Come on, Mario, put some more lead on it. It's the same guy that was underneath the Ferrari trying to get the frame to look right. Oh, man.
1: Can you imagine that? Also, because they were all made in Italy, building an individual body is said to have cost as much as between $55,000 and upward in 1963 money. That's equivalent to over $450,000 in today's money just for the body and coachwork. Unbelievable. Yeah. A total of 50 identical turbine cars were built between October of 1963 and 1964. All cars were finished in a metallic root beer colored paint known as turbine
0: bronze. So what I want people to do is I want you to just head over to your Safari or your Google or whatever it is. I want you to look up pictures of this car. It's pretty rad. I want you to take a look at it, especially look at the interior, which has this cylinder that goes from the front of the car to the rear of the car <laughs> yes basically insinuating that the prop goes all the way and maybe it does i don't know no it doesn't whatever it insinuates yeah, via the design. Whole thing
1: it was designed to evoke this basically image 100 especially in the rear
0: you've got and there's like these little grills that are up at the front at the front of the cylinder that everything says this is basically an, a fighter plane yeah absolutely so uh all cars with were- 130 horsepower
1: Well, it had 450 foot pounds of torque. That's true. Yeah. So that paint, though, are you looking at that? That color? Yeah. Turbine bronze. I've heard some cool paint colors over the years, but that one might be one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a good color. The turbine's headlight, as you mentioned, were extended past the hood, resembling jet engine intakes. And similarly, the taillights were deeply recessed. And the reverse lights are what you're seeing that are mounted in chrome bezels that extended outward, like the nozzles of a jet engine.
0: Of every concept car I've ever seen come out of anywhere, this thing looks absolutely incredible all the details with like the little knobs and the switches it really and does. like the wiper thing where you can turn the wipers on and off all these aluminum pieces like just milled it yeah. is it's phenomenal the yeah. time and effort that went into creating and designing this car what what I here's what i think what they were doing at chrysler what's that i think they said hey if we really want they obviously if they put this much money in it they wanted to change the automotive landscape Yeah, they wanted this to happen. They wanted this to happen. And they said, but if we're going to make this happen, it has to be legit. It has to be real. It has to be so good that there's no questions about how amazing this is. Whether it comes to the engineering or it comes to the design, there has to be no equivocation whatsoever that this is it. And I think you see that reflected in some of the design elements and the craftsmanship of these cars is just out of control. It's really cool. Yeah, the speaking of the interior, the
1: dashboard has three gauges, a speedometer, a tachometer, which as I said goes up to 50,000 rpm, and a pyrometer which monitors the temperature of the turbine inlet, which is awesome. So while the driving characteristics were fairly pedestrian, as I said, the tachometer and how this thing was so smooth running up to 50,000 RPM was just crazy. However, what really made this car stand out, Chris, was its marketing efforts. Chrysler would display turbines in shopping malls and hype a 47,000-mile world tour covering 23 cities in 21 countries. This wasn't just in the U.S. They made this thing go global.
0: Well, you you had to if they were spending $450,000 on just the body of the car. Right. Right. I mean, you had to take this thing out and get it out there as much as possible. A white
1: turbine coupe would co-star as James Darren's race car in the 1964 film The Lively Set, which I've never heard of before. I'm sure it's a terrible movie, but it had the car in it, which is cool. And Chrysler's marketing efforts went even further. Chrysler invited the average consumer to apply to have a turbine car for their own use for three months free of charge. After receiving more than 30,000 applications, the manufacturer released 50 of the vehicles to a select 203 households across the country. Each family was instructed to drive the car for three months before it was then collected and passed on to the next family chosen. Now, to tell us a little bit more, we called upon one of the guys who was instrumental to the program. So, Bill Carey, you're the person in charge of prepping the 47 or 50 cars used in the program that Chrysler released to the public. Can you tell us a little bit about what that program was and why Chrysler actually released it?
2: My job was to put together a field service program and support program for it. Train some guys who could take care of the cars out in the field and uh, do troubleshooting and all that kind of stuff. And to put together a service manual and whatever.
1: Now, as you can imagine, this program had a few hiccups. Bill
3: had this to say. My wife's brother, a little bit older than she was, was a Navy carrier pilot, and he was in town, and I had one of the cars in New York. This is where we're living, and I was going from one ticket from one place to bring to another to deliver it someplace else, and I stopped overnight at, at, at home where my our families are from, and my brother-in-law happened to be there, and he wanted to ride the car, and I said, sure, and I Took him for a ride in the car, and we stopped at a, another guy's house, a friend of his. And uh, I said, "Gee, I, you know, he he said to me, "Well, rev it up so you can hear what it sounds like." And I, that was a standard thing to do, kind of. And I floored it, and it blew up. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just, you know, the one the first stage turbo wheel just exploded. Oh my goodness! And and all of a sudden, this started happening. Uh, on engines that were getting about 25,000 miles on them, so, but it would, turned out to be a simple problem to fix. It was the uh, internal stresses in the in the in the shaft to turbine wheel weld that uh, uh, just wouldn't you know would eventually cause this failure. So they changed the welding process to a a different kind of process and got rid of the problem. It never happened again, but. Uh,
1: so when you say it blew up, I'm imagining some catastrophic where it like you know it's going through the housing of the well, engine. Well,
3: but it all no, unfortunately, it stayed. It all stayed within the housing. The housing was a cast iron housing. It wasn't it wasn't like an airplane engine that's made out of you know bent sheet metal and stuff like that. Gotcha. So, so it, did, it It no, nothing came out of the engine, fortunately.
1: And Chris, remember that basically stock Chrysler transmission they used? Yeah. Well, I stumbled upon a very interesting little-known tidbit. The torque flight transmission was the mainstay of the Mopar lineup over the years. Is that like a, a three-speed? It was a three-speed, yep. Yeah. Uh, and it was virtually indestructible. It was chosen then for this turbine project. However, the engineers char- were charged with making it all work together, and they ran into a little problem.
2: A good friend of mine for many years, the name of Fred Wiggins, had the, he ran the transmission development lab, and, uh, and he was the one who sort of on the side, developed, you know, took the, the, uh, existing, uh, three-speed torque flight to, and adapted it for this particular job. And it, it no longer had a torque converter and the bell housing was cut off and a number of things. But yeah, this, uh, he, he wanted that, you know, that kind of a control system rather than the, 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 piston engine ones, the, the engine torque input was signaled by the position of a thing called a throttle rod and it was a mechanical connection because the turbine and the accelerator pedal didn't follow, you know didn't follow each other exactly they wanted to be able to use a compressor discharge pressure signal to the transmission
1: one of the engineers had this to say, quote, in order to modulate the transmission control pressure relative to the turbine engine compressor pressure required an additional small wait, wait, valve. Wait.
0: say that again three times fast.
1: In order to modulate the transmission <laughs> control pressure relative to the turbine engine compressor pressure, pressure <laughs> <laughs>
0: How <laughs> no, much wood could a woodchuck chuck, chuck yes, a wood chuck, exactly. could chuck wood.
1: So basically, they just needed a way to figure out the pressure, and so they needed an additional small valve body to do the job. But the team didn't have one and they didn't have the time to design, manufacture, and test this new component. However, Chrysler knew from their corporate espionage efforts that the recent Lincoln transmissions contained just such a device. So, the engineers called upon a Lincoln dealer, but were told that the part couldn't be purchased individually. Instead, the engineer made a discreet phone call to his friend, who happened to be a colleague at Ford.
3: The transmission needs to know what the power level of the engine output is to you know control the hydraulic pressures that apply and release the clutches and all this kind of stuff and because in the gas turbine you, know, you step on the throttle and there's a, there's some time lag between getting the uh, the power output that you're asking for from when you asked for it if you will sure and so so the the rod would would make for a lousy shifting transmission so they wanted something that would take air pressure which was, as the, as the engine would accelerate, the compressor pressure would go up, and that would be uh, the the correct parameter to use to tell the transmission uh, what kind of power it was receiving what kind of torque is going into it. So, uh, Ford happened to have a of a, a transmission that used something like that, and uh, only it was, I guess, vacuum, but nonetheless it was a pressure signal. And Fred Wiggins, who was the guy who managed the, the transmission development for the corporation had a buddy in Ford in a similar position and was talking to him. And the guy said, oh, hey, you know, we got we got a whole bunch of those that were throwing away, those valves, uh, because we don't need them anymore. So, and if you want them, come get them. So Fred went over to this buddy at the, at Ford and picked up a couple of hundred of these things and brought them back. And those, that's, those valves were used in the transmission.
1: So do you, did anyone else at Chrysler, did the higher-ups know that there was a Ford part in their brand-new car?
3: Oh, I, I think I'm sure they did. They didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I mean, that was the least of their concerns. But yeah, they probably liked it. They were free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose you're right.
1: So, Chris, back to this unprecedented program of giving these cars out Hold to on the a populars. Second. How
0: about having to call up Ford? <laughs> I mean, do you call, do, I mean, do you go ask, What do you get on your knees before the phone call? No, or? so
1: I imagine this was just his buddy, right? Yeah. Is this engineer's buddy? He went to engineering school with him or something. And, and getting them
0: all for free was pretty yeah. good. He was I mean, like, that's, we
1: happen to be throwing a bunch of these away, so sure. Just there 4 a.m.,
0: they'll be on the dock yeah. of the shipping department. You just show up in your truck, and we'll just... And I like how
1: when I was researching this, I read the article and it basically said like, oh, no one at Chrysler knew about this. It was all hush hush. Only the engineer knew it. And when we talked to Bill, he basically said, oh, I'm sure they knew. They just didn't care. They got them for free. (laughs) (laughs) So regardless, you can tell all of the crazy marketing, engineering, everything that went into this. So let's get back to these programs of giving cars out to the population to test. Mark Olson was 16 years old when his parents, Alden and Beulah, took possession of their turbine car in Duluth, Minnesota on May 13th, 1965. Now, we got a hold of Mark and gave him a call. Hello? Hi, Mark. This is Jake Solberg.
4: Hi, Jake.
1: I'm digging into the history of the Chrysler turbine car for our listeners. And your family was one of those chosen to test the car back in the 1960s. Can you tell us about that program?
4: Yeah, that's right, Jay. Our family was the 165th user of the program. There were 203 total users. Uh, Each user had the car for three months, no longer. One or two of them sent them back. One guy sent it back, actually, after about uh, two weeks. He couldn't stand the the publicity where he was always in the public eye. (laughs) Uh, one of the other guys that had the car actually stuck it in the garage and never drove it for the whole time his (laughs) mileage was like like 200 miles but uh anyway the the pro program actually started beginning back in 1962 the turbine program started in 1954 uh george Hubner was the guy that was the uh, real instrumental one he came out of world war ii he had worked with uh, the engineering division at Chrysler was working on on jet engines and turbine engines during World War II for the government. And Huebner was put in charge of the program. And by 1962, they actually had two cars that were traveling around the United States. Uh, my dad and I had a chance to get a ride in one of those 62, I think it was a Fury that we ran, 62 Plymouth Fury, over in Superior, Wisconsin. Uh, the dealer over there was one of the points where they stopped around the country with the Dodge and the Plymouth that had... Those had the third-generation turbine engine in them. Uh, the GIA car, the 63 car that we had, that we drove, had the fourth-generation turbine. The big difference between them was is that the third-generation only had one gener- regenerator on the top of the car, and top of the engine that was kind of like one big radiator. Uh, the regenerators were used for preheating the incoming air and cooling the exhaust. When they built the fourth generation, they did some improvements in the burner, and they also went to two regenerators, one on each side. So if you think of it like a performance car, dual exhaust, uh, the regenerators didn't have regenerator didn't have to work quite as hard because there were two of them. Anyway, after after that program in '62 was such a success that people were interested. Like I remember, i had like 30 percent or 35 percent of the people said they would buy a turbine car if one of them came out. Uh, after that program went so well, uh, in February of 1962, they uh, made a commitment to build 50 or more turbine powered cars that uh, general people would use, just average people off the street.
0: Why do you think okay. that they were doing the program in the first place to have other people drive the cars? Because surely they have uh, just, you know, test drivers that can go drive around in these things. Why did they want the public involved?
4: That's a good question, and the best answers that we've had from uh, engineers I've talked to over the years and from our own experience, the first reason George Hubner wanted to see if this car was viable. When they ran that program with the 62 Plymouth and the 62 Dogs that went around and showed, they asked people at the end of their test drive questions, and one of those questions was, would you buy one of these? They asked them all kinds of things. Chrysler wanted to do and what George wanted to do, and he he convinced the executives along with himself, putting a bunch of cars in people's hands will really see what kind of a problem we would be up against if if we actually decided to build turbine cars. And it was, for its time, actually probably in all time. there's never been um, another program where you let out experimental vehicles to 203 average families and let them play with them for three months and didn't, basically didn't have a whole lot of control when they were in those users' hands. I mean, this is real-world testing. This isn't this isn't guy uh, driving around a test track and driving up hills and over bumps and you know that kind of stuff. This is what happens when you put a car in the real world. And I'm sure you know, and I'm sure your listeners would know, the real world is a lot harsher than some of the test <laughs> drivers can ever do.
0: When these guys would get these cars, and and you talk about the real-world testing and everything like that, did they have a responsibility to report back to the manufacturer? What were they responsible for?
4: Well, okay, the, the users had to sign a two-page agreement. The agreement basically said you wouldn't modify the car, you wouldn't uh, take the car drag racing, you wouldn't, you know, there were a whole lot of stuff. Well, I'm out. That's it for me.
0: I mean, I was, the first thing I would do is run more boosts and take that thing to the track. So, Mark, you were actually 16 when your family
1: took possession of this. What is it like being a 16-year-old kid driving what must have been the coolest car around at the time?
4: I, I put about 4,000 miles on it, out of the twelve or 13,000 we put on the car. My dad was a very, very generous man. Uh, he let so many people drive that car, take it around the block, take it on a little short trip. Uh, I'll bet during the three months we had it, he let over 500 people either drive it like a block or two or or take it for a short trip. uh, And whenever we were traveling, he let me drive it most of the time. We drove out to Yellowstone
1: Park in Montana. What was the most memorable time or story that you were going to recall with this car?
4: Well, probably the most humorous and related to the whole story. uh, When we were coming back from Montana to heading to Iowa, I'm, I'm driving across Nebraska. And we were getting close to, uh, if I remember, Minden, Nebraska. And I watched the tack drop, and I didn't have any gas. after my gas pedal wasn't doing it. See, I said to my dad, hey, dad, we got a flame out. And I pulled off to the side of the road. And, well, being gearheads, both my dad and I, we popped the hood open. And, and, you know, they told us you're not supposed to work on the car, okay? But there's this big black switch that you could throw. And it was a, it was a circuit breaker. When you tried to start the car and it didn't start, the circuit breaker dropped. And they made you get out of the car. The purpose of that was that when that circuit break when, when you tried to start the car without it running, you would start building up fuel in the burner. And if you burned up too much too much fuel in the burner and it did ignite, you had a major problem on you. <laughs> <laughs> so they built this safety feature into there where when you tried to start the car and it didn't start, you had to go out and flip the switch. So we flipped the switch tried starting and nothing happened well we knew where the fuel filter was it was right in the front behind the bumper screw the fuel filter up it seems there's a fuel in there so i screw the fuel filter now there's fuel there so uh what do we do now i guess we have to call somebody so there's a glove compartment card that had the list of the coordinators so that we got a hold of al um and i was coming up out of uh Kansas City to be here in the morning and he'll fix it. So he flew up from Kansas City. And about, we were eating breakfast and uh, about nine o'clock in the morning, uh, the local dealer calls and said, Your car's ready. The turbine's back ready again. You can come down and get it. Now, if you get the turbine car, the turbine engine adjusted exactly right, it would sometimes make this big poof. When it started and there'd be a cloud of white smoke would come out the back uh, it wasn't supposed to be that way but if the conditions were just exactly right usually after a tune-up al said it'll do it so it might do it for a few times and it will go out of tune and it'll quit doing that so we're standing there around the car and my dad was in it and al told him to start it up my dad hits the switch the key let it go and she wound up and poof, a big poof and cloud of smoke and there's this little old lady, must have been 80 years old, she's jumping up and down and she goes, I want one of those, I want one of those! (laughs) (laughs) It was was just one of those things you had to laugh at. She was just so excited. That's what I was going to say about the cars too, you know, the car having, being driving one of these, everyone knew what it was, or almost everyone. Um, They knew it from the, the way it looked, they knew it from the sound, like a big vacuum cleaner. Um, they would come up, and people would just, you know, anywhere. Could you open the hood? We want to see the engine. Could you stop it? Could you start it again? Uh, and J.M. Uh, Stern, who was at that time the vice president of the Plymouth Division, told me, showed me a little trick, uh, both me and my dad, you take a nickel and set it on the top of the engine and reach through the, gl- the window, driver's side window, and start the car. You didn't have to You have to do anything except turn the key, and it was all automatic. It started. Start the car, and then he showed, you know, we knew where the throttle was on the top of the engine. Rubber up a few times, you know, and the nickel doesn't fall. Well, it's a pretty no-brainer. If the nickel fell, the engine would probably be a grenade. the balance point in those things was you had to be a hundred percent balanced or you didn't have an engine anymore
0: right right for sure especially with the rpms that thing would probably turn did you ever top this thing out how fast did you ever get this thing going you can tell it's been it's been you know it's been a long time since then (laughs) how fast did you get it going
4: that's another interesting story my dad made the mistake of driving a guy drive it who was probably just a little bit more than tipsy. And he had three people with him and he was giving him all a chance to drive. And this guy happened to get on the coming down this long hill and he had the needle peg going down that 120 and my dad's over there going, slow down, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that was probably, you know, of course it was going downhill. So, um, way hey, back to J.M. Sturm, a little trick he did tell me while we were, we had a, when they delivered the car to us, before the car was delivered, they gave us a breakfast at uh, local Perkins up in Duluth. And there were about well, four or five people there from, uh, Chrysler Corporation. And one of them was this J.M. Sturm who I was telling you about. He told me aside, and he was talking to me, and he says, he had, at that time, he had a 14, a 16, and an 18 year old kid of his own. And he said, you know, I want to tell you something. He says, um, I know you're probably going to want to try torque loading that thing. And he says, if you do, just watch the temperature gauge so it doesn't go over 1,800 1800, uh, 1800 degrees. (laughs) Basically, the red line was 2,000 degrees. And he says, just watch the temperature gauge if you get a torque load. (laughs) And you can get rubble with that thing when you did that. (laughs) So, Uh, Mark, explain
1: torque loading. I think I know what you mean, but explain that to our listeners.
4: Okay, well, that's where you hold your left foot on the brake and you start pushing on the gas pedal until until the car feels like it's going to explode. On <laughs> <laughs> a gas engine, usually the piston engine will usually overpower the rear wheels and you feel the car rise up in the back. Uh, the thing with the turbine is it didn't quite do it like that because the way that, the way when, okay, there was no torque converter in the transmission. Uh, it was an automatic transmission, a two-speed torque light. That have been modified so there was no torque converter they use the second stage turbine as the torque converter so if you can imagine you've got this huge whirlwind blowing from the front part of the turbine when you start accelerating this is blowing against these turbine blades that are no longer moving anywhere and they're trying to move and that's why he said watch the temperature gauge You it idled at about 1450 1450 degrees he says it'll start melting down over 2000 if you peg that needle at 2000 you're going to start damaging the engine so you say keep it around halfway between the 15 and the 2000 don't let it go over that before you let your foot off the brake
1: so mark this experience must have stuck with you you are as far as i can tell now the foremost research on these turbines and i saw that you managed traincar.com i assume that's where people can find out more and find you for any questions
0: yep that's right before we let you go, is there any other stories you'd like to tell us? Anything else you'd you'd like to relay to everybody?
1: You
4: know, just being in the program, it, it uh, to me. It changed my life. Um, I was not a very outgoing person before um, the three months we had that car, but after the three months we had that car, I had to become an outgoing person because you either went and uh, hid, the, hid in the garage someplace with the car and we'll looked at the pretty instrument panel or you went out and drove it. And when you went out and drove it, People approached you and you had to be nice to them because if you weren't, you know, you were, you were probably going to, we, we had a number of people write to Chrysler and say, what a, you know, uh, what a wonderful family you gave this car to. And then we're kind of going, well, we're just trying to be nice because Chrysler was awfully nice to us to let it drive a car for, for uh, three months that was probably worth more than we could pay for two or three houses. And they really, like I say, they didn't put a whole lot of strings onto it. Uh, it was, it was use it like you'd use a regular car.
0: Well, well that's sounds, an, that's an awesome story. Thank you very much, Mark. Yeah, we really appreciate you uh, calling in and spending some time with us.
1: Okay,
4: well, thank you for uh, for asking, and uh, good luck with your show.
0: Unfortunately, Chris, while the public test were- hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I just want to say how incredible it is that this program existed. It's nuts. Basically, giving fifty cars that are what's the. <laughs> Just think of this in today's society, okay? Think of the liability involved with giving people jet engines in their car, basically. (laughs) There was, there's no way. Think people are crying and worried about autonomous driving. There's nobody wants to do it. Everybody's scared. But this is the 60s. Just here, have it, you know? Yeah. Just make sure you drink a beer before you go out to calm, (laughs) just to calm your nerves before you head out on the road. It's nuts. So the tests were overwhelmingly positive, but the
1: project was still scrapped.
2: There were a couple of problems. Uh, the principal one was, when all was said and done, it, it was it didn't offer that much more than what already existed. I mean, it had some fascination associated with it. It uh, it was it did have the characteristics of being very very smooth, very very low maintenance, uh, things of that sort. But. Uh, but it was going to cost the corporation an enormous amount of money to tool up and, and put something like that into volume production. And I, that's what stopped it. I mean, Chrysler at the time didn't have that much money laying around, and they had other financial problems. And uh, I think everybody generally accepted that uh, that's what stopped the program. They had They had another program, a follow-on program, ready to go where they were going to build like 500 cars. And actually sell them, Um, and they built a couple of prototypes of those cars, but that that never that died when they finally decided not to spend anymore.
1: So just as Chrysler was about to double down on its turbine efforts with plans to put the engine into the next year's Dodge Charger. The EPA tightened smog regulations, which would have made it all but impossible for the turbine to meet emission standards. In April of 1966, Chrysler Vice President Harry Cheesebro stated... (laughs) Cheesebro, I know. This is the second history story we've had where someone named Cheesebro... Harry Cheesebro stated that the 50 test cars would be taken off the road and destroyed... Why did they destroy these cars? 45 of the cars were burned and crushed at a scrapyard south of Detroit. Legend has it that one doomed to the crusher was crash tested for the hell of it at the Chelsea Proving Grounds, and the whereabouts of that wreck are unknown. So, yeah, why destroy these? It's a widely circulated explanation was that it was done to avoid a substantial
0: tariff on the imported Gia bodies. I have a quote here about Bill, from Bill about why they were destroyed from, okay. uh, from Hemmings.com. He says... As I recall, there was an important duty payable on the cars from Gia if they were sold. The duty also declined in amount payable over time. By the time the disposition of the bodies was being determined, this duty had decreased to next to nothing. So maybe that's not actually true. Right, I was just
1: going to say, so this explanation was... Basically, largely discredited. That wasn't the thing.
0: Yeah, he says the d- the decision was made because it was just a pragmatic decision. They didn't want. He goes on to say they didn't want people putting V eight engines in these things and seeing <laughs> right. Around. Yeah, you
1: have to realize that the destruction of cars was in line with basically the standard practice of not selling you know non production or prototype cars to the public. They like you said they didn't want these things showing up on a used car lot and people swapping different engines into them.
0: Yeah, they cr- everything you see and gets crushed, right? Or it right. goes in a museum or something like yeah. that. you'll never see a uh, a pre production car on the road. They, yeah, they crush. It, they them, them. don't get sold. all of them. So while forty 46- six, sorry, same thing with SEMA cars. There's a lot of SEMA cars oh, that really? basically get crushed or get they just. Never get driven or they get cut in half or whatever. They get destroyed because they're not allowed to be
1: on the road. I didn't realize that. So while 46 of the 55 cars were destroyed, nine survived. Seven of the cars are retained by museums. The Chrysler Museum in Michigan. Do we know how these nine cars escaped being destroyed? I think it was just part of what they said like, these will never be on the road. We're just going to save them for,
0: you know, museum and history's sake. Well, think about that electric car that GM made. What was that thing called? The EV1. The EV1. There's almost none of those. Those all got destroyed. Wow. So it's 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 weird that I think it's strange that some of these survived. Yeah, so there's seven. Uh, one is
1: in the Chrysler Museum in Michigan. One is in the National Museum of Transportation in St. Louis. The Detroit Historical Museum has one. Uh, the Henry Ford Museum has one, oddly enough. Well, they do have their parts. <laughs> in I suppose maybe they're like, hey, look at this one part in it. Uh, the Peterson Museum in L.A. has one. And the Smithsonian Institute in
0: Washington has one as well. The remaining have you been to the Smithsonian? I've not been. To it the is Smithsonian. Unbelievable! It's amazing. If you I go really to DC, to there's there. there's uh, the Natural History Museum, there's the Air and Space Museum. They're so good. They're so good. The the uh, the, um, the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, you. It's there. Ralph, well, the, like, Ralph Lauren owns the Star Spangled Banner, and you walk into this dark room with a special lighting, and you see it there the actual star spangled banner now
1: are you talking about the actual flag the actual flag
0: that inspired the star spangled banner is there and you go in there and you're just like yeah oh you get kind of overwhelmed with emotion and the whole museum is like that because everything is this really real stuff like thomas edison's designs wow cars like this yeah it's these real uh foundation and bones of american manufacturing and ingenuity that you can go and see it's awesome sidebar go to the museum yeah so
1: that's where five of those cars are two more are in private collections one of which belongs to jay Leno, and both of those cars actually still run today, which is really cool. So turbines never really caught on in the motoring world, but it's still really interesting to just look back today with all the other alternative propulsion systems on the market. We have electric vehicles that seem to be the inevitable future, and with them, perhaps even hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. We've talked
0: about that a lot. Well, the differences between electric and hydrogen and what happened back when the turbine car came out, the turbine car was a push by a corporation. True. electric and hydrogen everything else is a is a political movement. True. So you have basically the weight of government behind it, which is a completely different push than just being like, yeah, we think this will work better. It's more like, yeah, you're going to drive this. <laughs> so there's, there's different ways of doing it. If the government would have said, we're going to get behind this turbine car and we think this is great and in fact, we're going to come out with regulations that make the combustion engine piston driven cars harder to produce, harder to maintain, and uh, we're going to make it astronomically expensive to continue to invest in this technology, you bet your ass we'd be driving turbine cars right now. But of course, this was just a, a corporate decision. I know,
1: yeah. Just think if things had been a little bit different, we could all be driving around with that high-pitched whine of a turbine
0: under the hood. These things are so loud. Can you imagine? Maybe that's where all the <laughs> weight came from in these cars. So you just can-
1: insulation?
0: Hey! <laughs> Eileen! Yeah? Yeah! <laughs> You want to stop at the Howard Johnson Motor Lodge on your way to Grandma's (laughs) house?
1: (laughs) So, joking aside, Chris, these things were very, very quiet. They were.
0: They were very, very quiet. When you watch videos of them driving around, it seems ridiculously quiet and smooth.
1: Yeah, it's basically like, oh, there's a vacuum running maybe in the next apartment over? But that's all you hear. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, that's the story. Uh, Before we go, we have to thank Worth USA, another one of our sponsors. Worth is a family owned global company that's been in operation since 1945. They have their line of hand tools, which are world class, and they really are the
0: premier and professional grade supplies. Like I would say, it's the good stuff.
1: Head over to WorthUSA.com to check out all of their products.
0: All right, guys. Jake, thanks for putting it together. I had a lot of fun doing this with you yesterday and today. It was super cool to uh, talk to the uh, talk to the old school guys about yeah, what they're thanks doing. thanks to, uh, to Bill and Mark for calling in. That was great. Yeah, thanks a lot to you guys. And we'll see everyone else on Monday. Take care.
2: We'll